Hello, story lovers. I'm Laurel McCark, and you're listening to Alligator Preserves. Stay tuned for my visit with June Trope, woman of mystery. I had the pleasure of meeting with June recently over a Zoom meeting between Leadville, Colorado and New Paltz, New York. So there may be an occasional warble of sound, but you're going to want to hear what June has to say about writing and storytelling and being a teacher and so many other things. You can also visit with us on YouTube. I'll have a link to that on my webpage. So don't go away. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic, because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. Hello, story lovers. I'm Laurel McCarg, and you're listening to, and if you're watching the YouTube video, watching Alligator Preserves. I have a very special guest today. Her name is June Trope. She is Associate Professor Emerita at the State University of New York at New Paltz. And June is an author of a special series. So welcome, June. Thank you. I do feel welcome. I'm very glad that we finally had a chance to meet. We've been corresponding for, through email, and last night I had a chance to meet your husband when we did a little, a little practice session of uh, getting the Zoom thing set up. And uh, you said that he left the room? Yes, he did. I want you to tell the connection between us, how I know your area and you know mine. Well... I know your area, and you live in New Paltz, New York, if anyone's heard of New Paltz. Um, I know your area because when we were stationed at West Point, my husband and I graduated from West Point. And oh, by the way, this weekend is our 35th anniversary of our graduation, which is kind of crazy. Here I have, if for those of you watching, I have my West Point ring on um, just to, to uh, honor that. I couldn't make it to the reunion. But uh, New Paltz is a place where my husband learned to rock climb, or, or he didn't. He learned to rock climb at West Point. But we had some friends who lived in New Paltz, Laura and Jean Smith. If you're still out there somewhere, and they were big climbers, and so we would go to the Gunks, the Schwan Gunks, as as you know they're called, and that's how we know New Paltz. Beautiful place. We have a gorgeous piece of artwork from there as well that we've kept. So how do you know Leadville? I know Leadville because when I graduated from college, I majored in biology and chemistry. I got my first assignment at the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research in Colorado to measure the amount of radiation that had blown over through the snow from the Nevada testing. Now, I'll tell the truth. I'll admit I graduated in 1964, and the Nevada testing had been in 1952. So I went out to Colorado. I had never been out west. I had never been west of the Passaic River, which is a slow-moving industrial river in Newark, New Jersey. Chug, 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 chug. I had never been anywhere. But I went to, let's see, Nederland, Colorado was the post office. Maybe you've heard of Nederland. Yes. 
And uh, we were in the front range of the Colorado Rockies, somewhere west of Boulder and maybe a tad north. But over the weekend, since I had never been in the area, I had a chance to visit the Cheyenne Frontier Festival. I went to Central City, Colorado to go gold panning, and I even passed through Leadville. So I think the connection between us was you knew my area, I knew yours, and I think we loved both. Yes, and also I found out that you were a middle school teacher, a middle school science teacher. So let's get right into this. And let me ask you, June Trope, who are you? Who am I? I still think of myself as a middle school teacher because that was the best job I ever had. Oh, yes, I taught high school biology and physical science, but I love teaching middle school the most. Why? Why? I like the kids, Laurel. I like the kids. They were game for anything and everything, especially if they thought their parents wouldn't approve. They were just eager. And so I didn't find that in the high school. They were rather ho-hum. Who is this knucklehead who's going to be teaching us science? I'd like to give you my favorite example of that. One day when I was teaching middle school science, the lesson was about alternation of generations in flowering plants. Now that's a rather involved, complex subject, and I couldn't really be sure they'd be interested at all. I imagined the kids rolling their eyes. So what I decided to do was, as soon as they came into the classroom, I had darkened the classroom, I turned off the lights, and I admitted to them that I forgot to get permission from their parents for this lesson, that I should have done that, but that I was going to go ahead anyway. Oh, so you were a little bit of a a rebel here. Yes, a little naughty. And I told them, it was springtime, that the plants right now, outside the window, I had the shades down, but outside the window were having sex. Oh. Oh, Laurel, they jumped out of their seats they went to the windows, they tore off the shades. <laughs> and this is what I, I don't see anything. I don't see anything. Yeah. Afterwards, I had to go to the principal and admit that the shades were torn. He'd have to find the money to replace the shades. But when I did that same gig in the high school, the kids weren't like that at all. I got a very Ah, ho-hum reaction. Oh, there she is. And there I did get the rolling of the eyes. That's when I knew middle school was going to be the place for me. And so it was. I stayed there almost 20 years, a few years in the high school, but almost 20 years in the middle school. And I loved them. And so that's another connection that we had uh, my first year of teaching was seventh grade English in a middle school that ultimately closed. And I wrote my first novel based on that. It was called Miss because I don't know about you, but they always called me Miss. And uh, using storytelling with that age was always quite effective. And you're right. uh, The middle school mind is in between, you know, they're, they're not children anymore. They're not quite adults, but they want to be. And so I, I just found that they were like sponges and 
uh, happy to learn and, and not quite, oh, not quite yawning yet. Yes. Now, you mentioned that they were not quite adults and not quite children. I felt something similar, but I would describe it like this. Some days they were adults and some days they were children. And you never were sure when each one walked in the room, which he or she would be. So speaking about children, I learned that you are a twin. You have a twin sister? Yes, I do. Gail, tell, tell me what it's like to be a twin. It was a wonderful experience. It was a wonderful experience, except if you wanted to wear the same thing. Let's put it that way. Then we fought. Oh, yes, we fought. I got very good at fighting, but my sister was always better. The main thing was we used to bite, and that was really pretty bad. So when I say we fought, I'm not kidding. But... Childhood, I believe, is really a very difficult time of life. I know that parents try to provide a nurturing atmosphere. Most parents certainly do. But childhood is still a trial. But I had somebody always with me with whom I could commiserate. I could complain and she'd understand. And maybe the best thing was I always said somebody to walk from home from school with, we used to run to school because we were always just on the cusp of lateness and there was a penalty for being late. But we'd walk and we had a long walk. It was two and a half miles home. And that was the uphill part, so we couldn't run that. But I always had somebody with me. Now, I'll tell you another bad part, though. She got a date before I did. What? (laughs) She got a date to go to the movies. And I marshaled my friends, and we sat right behind them and throwed candy throughout the whole movie. That's what you call real jealousy. <laughs> That's wonderful. We also have another connection, too. I wrote uh, in, in one of my podcasts, I, I talked about sticking the maple leaf things on our noses when, when I'd walk to school with my baby sister and my friend Marilyn Hinsa, who's still a friend since kindergarten. But yeah, those little uh, little flighty things, you'd peel open the seed part and stick them on your nose. And I think you you did that too. Yes, we did. Now that's the fruit part. The maple plant is fertilized, the flower is fertilized. It's not a particularly spectacular flower. And then you get that little seed, which is inside the fruit, you put that on your nose. Since I associated you, Laurel, from being in Leadville, I had to scratch my head about that till I saw that you did grow up in the Northeast, in Massachusetts. So yes, you would have had maple trees. You didn't, you don't have them naturally occurring in Leadville, do you? No, no, we have aspens, and they're changing as we speak. They're beautiful. Uh, we, I miss New England fall, I have to say that, but I am going to visit some other sisters in Maine in a couple of weeks, so I'm hoping that I'll see some of those maples too. But yeah, yes, a science teacher, thank you for explaining the whole seed part of that. So I'm imagining that you told stories to your class in addition to you know, getting their interest by saying that the flowers are having sex. Did you use storytelling a lot in class? I did use it quite a bit because for every principle we learned, there was always a little bit of history. 
And so I might have doctored up the stories and I might have even gotten them wrong at times, but I did make a, a story out of it. So, for example, we were learning about the link between electricity and magnetism, that magnetism makes electricity and electricity can make magnetism. And I I fibbed a little, but I made up a story about how Han Christian Ersted discovered that connection. I said that his room was very messy and his mother always wanted him to clean the room. But because he never did, he had his magnets around and he had an electric wire around. And when he plugged in the electric wire, he saw that it deflected the magnetic needle. So it was because his room was messy and I told them they could tell that story to their mother the next time she told them they had to clean up their room. <laughs> the stories were fabricated, but they were essentially true, essentially. How many phone calls or visits did you get from parents <laughs> frequently? <laughs> I did get some, yes. And you know what I did? I said to them, your concerns are very important to me. They're so important to me that I think you ought to take them right to the front office. The principal is there right now. And they'd go scurrying down and the principal would come back and he'd be fuming. There would be smoke coming out of his ears. And he said, June, why do you send those angry parents to me? And I said to him, Nick, because you make more money than I do. <laughs> Fortunately, he had a sense of humor. That's, that's awesome. So I read in your bio on Amazon, and your books are available on Amazon, by the way, that the first story you ever wrote, you wrote with your twin sister, Gail, called The Steam Shovel. Shovel, you spelled it wrong, and you sold it for two cents to your brother. Do you remember that story? I do. It wasn't a very long story, actually. We were maybe, the reason I say, I guess we were five, because we were five in first grade. The reason it wasn't very long is we didn't have that much paper, and we were writing with crayons, so oh. that, you know, that's pretty thick. But we did have a chance to draw a steam shavel. My sister said that's the way you spell Steam shovel. I couldn't have spelled anything. She was a much better reader and a much better writer, and she still is to this day. She's got a little more wires in her brain than I do, but she said it spelled shavel, and so it was. That was the story. I think it was two pages, but with crayon, and we did have a picture of a real steam shovel that was in our neighbor's yard. My brother had said one day, he was eight years older, my brother had said one day when we said, what are we going to do today? He said, why don't you go out in the neighborhood and write a newspaper story about it? And so that's how we wrote the steam shavel. And he was stuck with buying it because that was his idea. I think that's wonderful. Talk about entrepreneurial spirit when you were five years old. That's great. Wow. So education. Do we want to talk about the state of education today? Well, it is different from the way it was when I was in school. I have to tell you, when I was teaching in school, 
And when I went to school as a student, I did most of my teaching in the state of New Jersey, which is a home rule state. That means that not only does the district, which ultimately means the teacher, not only does the district have the right to determine the instructional methods, but they have the right to determine the curriculum as well. Now, you might think then that every district in the state would have a different curriculum and it would be utter chaos, but that's not the way it was because we did tend to use textbooks that had been adopted nationally or at least had a very wide distribution. On the other hand, other places like Texas had control statewide of the curricula and the instructional methods. So the teacher didn't have the same level of autonomy we had in New Jersey. I think that's unfortunate because teachers do have individual areas of expertise, and as long as they're committed to teaching the curriculum that the district, not the state, the district prescribes, then I think we get along okay. But then when I moved to New York, after I married Paul Zuckerman, I moved to New York and I got a job as a biology teacher. There the curriculum was highly prescribed. And so I didn't have as much work to create a curriculum. It was already there for me, as was the final exam. But I didn't have the thrill, the same creative thrill. On the other hand, I did have full autonomy over the instructional methods. And don't you think that different communities, that the students in different communities have different needs, particularly, I'm thinking about Leadville, and it's a mining community. And I think mining community um, students have different needs from someone who lives in a city. Oh, I certainly do. I think someone who lives in a forest area can understand forest ecology, but if I were teaching in an urban area, I would teach urban ecology, the ecology with the plants and animals in the immediate area, and it's very, very different. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I do indeed think that it's good to adapt the curriculum to the local place. And I'll tell you where New York got in trouble. New York has a highly developed urban area in New York City and other major cities, but also the most rural areas you can imagine. And so when the Board of Regents adopted a biology curriculum that talked about eagles and animals like that, the kids in the city had no idea really, no sense of connection with those animals. It would have been better if I think the teacher, depending upon her district, could choose the particular curriculum on ecology that mm -hmm. fit her students. Right. Mining town as well. The minerals that you find in Leadville, for example, that are mined are very different from northern New Jersey. So now that you're not teaching, you've taken a break from teaching, you write crime. Are, are, are you a sleuth? Well, I would say that I've had a life of crime. I put huh. it that 
way because when I was first starting to read, and I was slower than my sister, I've told you, but the one series that I really loved was Nancy Drew. Did you ever read Nancy Drew? I devoured the Nancy Drew, and I actually had that down as a note. Did you read Nancy Drew? Did that inspire you? I loved those books. I loved those books, and there were other books that were patterned after, but Nancy Drew was the most popular series of its time for children. And it was the first series of books written, not so much for didactic purposes to teach a moral lesson, but to entertain. And so that was a kind of a a new frontier for children's literature. I remember my public library didn't carry Nancy Drew. And when I asked the librarian why, she said, that's just trashy reading oh i and i I believe they've re republished them maybe in more up-to-date language i remember trying to read the hardy boy series to our sons when they were young and just couldn't do it because the language was so so different it was challenging uh because it was more informal it was slang was that why i i I think it was just old-fashioned the way it was presented Okay, I kind of picked up the more modern Nancy Drews, and I was disappointed because I couldn't really relive with the books that I had known as a child. So that's why I say my life of crime began then with Nancy Drew, and then I graduated. I graduated to Sherlock Holmes, author Conan Doyle, and then I graduated to Agatha Christie, And so I would say that my whole life, I've always been involved in a mystery series. So that's why I was naturally inclined to write about mysteries. I wish I had been a sleuth. I really believed that ordinary girls like Nancy Drew did encounter mysteries just walking through the neighborhood. And I was very disappointed coming home, and nothing seemed mysterious to me. No whisper in Larkspur Lane or uh, the bungalow mystery or anything like that. Nothing happened. So I, I never got to be a sleuth. That disappointed me. But now you are. And so how did you get the idea for your protagonist, a female protagonist, in the Miriam Bat Isaac series? I got her, I got the idea of her when I got a sore toe. So I think I better explain that to him. Yes, a sore toe. (laughs) It still hurts once in a while, not very often, but it hurts once in a while. I was taking a course in graduate school on the historical development of concepts in chemistry. I had never studied chemistry from a historical perspective. As a matter of fact, chemistry is customarily taught. You learn the laws today. This is the way they are today. And anything that was believed before was just bunk. We don't pay any attention to that. We don't even admit believing that. So that's really the way chemistry was taught. Then when I took this course in the historical development of concepts in chemistry, the professor, whom I love to this day, Jean Lithcott, she lives in Palo Alto, California, still a very, very dear inspiration to me. She said, 
I want you each to write a paper about a historically significant concept in chemistry. And Laurel, I didn't know what to do. I even got so desperate. I was a very serious student. I even got so desperate as to cry. And I thought, what am I going to do? I can't think of anything. I got an idea. I'm going to go and weave around the stacks in the library until something just hits me. Seriously, seriously, you were leaving this up to fate. Some book is going to jump out and catch your attention. I certainly did. I didn't know that one would fall on my foot, which that's why I have the sore toe. No. Yes, it did. Because you see, when I walked through the stacks, my eyes were up toward heaven. I was waiting for God to give me an inspiration. I didn't notice. I didn't notice I was bumping into the stacks. And this book, this very heavy one, wouldn't you know it, from a top shelf, fell on my foot, and it opened up to a page. It was a page about a woman named Maria Habrea, the most famous woman in the Western world, holding her fame for 1,500 years for her work in chemistry. How could that be? I, I can't even imagine this. This is, that's magical. That was magical. I thought to myself, how is it that I've never heard of this woman? I'm Jewish. She's a woman. Her name literally means Mary the Hebrew, although she was also known as Maria the Prophetess. She had these grand names because she was an alchemist. And so... I thought to myself, what a wonderful idea. I'll write my paper about Maria Hebrea and the beginnings of chemistry. It was called chemistry at that time, which was really was derived from alchemy. The words were related. Well, I loved researching the paper. Unfortunately, or today I would say fortunately, there was very little known about her. To my listeners out there today, I hope you're enjoying my visit with June Trope, Woman of Mystery. I hope you might consider becoming a patron of Alligator Preserves and my work. I'm a one-person operation, and your contribution would be greatly appreciated. Go to patreon.com slash alligatorpreserves to see how you can support my work. And now stay tuned as June talks about locked room dramas and some research fun and lots more but i also need to confess i made a mistake when we were talking about octopuses and hippopotamuses and i can't even believe that i made this mistake because i actually looked it up and i thought i was the pro on it the plural of octopus is in fact octopuses not octopi and i think i said the wrong thing I heard my mistake when I was editing this interview, and I was horrified. So yes, the plural of octopus is octopuses, and the plural of hippopotamus is actually hippopotamuses as well. But you'll hear about that later and why we even talked about it. Don't go away. Alchemy was a capital offense during the Roman Empire. After all, she lived in first century of the Common Era 
in Alexandria. And because it was a capital offense, those who were alchemists used pseudonyms. Let me interrupt you here and ask why, why was it an offense? It was considered uh, magic or dark magic then? No. It, later, alchemy got the label of sorcery, black magic, later, hundreds of years later, it was because it was taken seriously and the emperor believed that the alchemists in creating gold would undermine the empire's currency and overthrow the government. Wow. Yeah, okay. So it was regarded as an act of treason. So all of the alchemists at that time wrote under pseudonyms. My alchemist, I don't know what her name really was. She just wrote under the name of Maria Habrea, first to hide her own identity, but second of all, to add a kind of loftiness to her name to enhance her claims with authenticity. I'm, I'm almost surprised that she used her first name as a woman. Well, you see, we don't know anything about her. You see, the only people who wrote about her wrote about her about 300 years after she died. Uh, The only writings we have about her were from a Greek alchemist named Zosimos of Panapolis. I don't know whether I'm pronouncing it right. I hope he'll forgive me if it's set up. But he wrote about her. Maybe he just assumed it was a she. You know, you raised that question, Laurel. I don't know whether it really was a woman. But all I know was, historically, she was portrayed as a woman, this alchemist, and very little else was known about her. And the good part was I was free to make up the rest. Well, that's perfect. And so your main character is Miriam, and you write in first person perspective. So from the eye perspective of Marion's, we're seeing through Miriam's eyes. Why did you decide to write in first person? I wrote in the first person to make the character more real to the reader. Here I was creating in my books a historical background, researching all I could about first century of the common era, Alexandria, about which I'm happy to say a lot was written. But I researched that. I used a few devices to bring my reader to that setting, to that time and place. First of all, I wanted my character to be real And so I use the first person. The other way I tried to bring my reader closer was to just dribble in little pieces of language, little Greek words. Greek was not classic Greek, Ionic Greek, but everyday vulgar Greek. It's called coin. Coin was the language of the everyday, the vernacular. So I would drop in some vernacular words, but the officials were Roman and they spoke Latin. And then in everyday life, or no, I I should say not in everyday life, in liturgical life, Miriam was Jewish. And so in the synagogue, they spoke Hebrew. So I sprinkled in a few words and then I have a little glossary in each book to explain the words that I I use. So I use the language and I use the first person 
to try to bring the reader closer to the time and place. And you also did a beautiful job of describing the location and the setting and the smells in particular. You do a lot with the smells. I happen to have a very strong sense of smell, and that's both a blessing and a curse. But I'm proud to say my very first book was cited by the the Historical Novel Society for its accurate portrayal of life in Alexandria at that time. I'm very, very proud of that. Nice. And so when you're thinking of your stories and you're going to sit down to write, how do you go about crafting your story? Would you consider yourself a planner or a pantser? I don't know if you listened to my (laughs) podcast with uh, Annalisa Parent. She wrote a book about, you know, are you a pantser? And so I'm wondering about your process. I am too much of an obsessive compulsive to be able to, and maybe you caught that about me already, but I'm too much of it to be able to be a pantser. Recently, now I'm writing my sixth Miriam Butt Isaac mystery. I've been able to let go a little bit and let the characters tell me their story. But in the beginning, it was very, very tight. I would start hierarchically with just an idea. Maybe I read a story and I didn't like the way it ended, or I thought, what if we did this, or what if we did that? So I used that background as a way of taking off or twisting a little bit, or maybe I get an idea from, I don't know where those ideas come from, but I I get an idea and I boil it down to 30 words. It had to be not 31, I told you I was obsessive, but I boil it down to a nugget statement of 30 words, maybe it was 40, but it wasn't a tad more and it wasn't a tad less. And in it, I put in everything about that story that I could squeeze in and that kept me on the track. And then I would expand it hierarchically. What has to happen in each scene? What conflicts? What has to happen? And I'd write each scene on note cards and then elaborate what has to happen as I got more ideas. And only then, when I had a stack of note cards that I could just fling around, would I be ready to sit down and write. So, so you started you started with your elevator pitch is what they call it, right? You step in an elevator, you find out that there's a publisher in the elevator with you. You have two floors to convince them to purchase your story. So 30 words or 40 words, um, even numbers obsessive on or, or <laughs> but it, you had, you had your ele- ele- elevator pitch and you grew from there. Interesting. Okay. I think I got that from Jean Lithcott, my mentor, because she gave me a set of books to read. I walked in as a new student, new graduate student, and I said, Jean, I don't know anything. Before I even begin the program, give me some books to read. So she gave me a stack of books, and one of them was very, very thick, not as thick as the one that fell on my toe, but it was thick. And she said to me, I want you to come back, and I want you to write what these books were about in 200 characters. And I said, oh, Jean, I can't do that. I can hardly carry these books. 
she said to me, if you really understand what these are about, then that's what you'll be able to do. And that was before Twitter. Yes, that was before Twitter. We had computers then, but we were a little rusty, both of us. So I learned then, and when I taught to my students too, I would have them read articles about teaching and learning, about cognition, and about the history of science, because I did believe that every prospective science teacher needed a broader view than just, I know biology or I know geology. They needed to have a broader view. So I had them read a little bit about history of science and the philosophy of science. And whatever I had them read, I challenged them to write it, give me feedback on half of one sheet of nine and a half by 11 typewritten paper. And some would say, can we make the margins bigger? And some say, well, we're going to use a very small font. They say, well, you just remember the purpose of this assignment and do the best you can. It seems, it seems like the opposite's true today when kids get a, a writing assignment. They're like, um, can we have big margins and large font? <laughs> if you say you want a five-page paper, that's yeah. just cheating. You can't do that. So was it your first book that you wrote that was really a, a guide for new teachers? Oh, yes. I have it here, as a matter of fact. This is it. I don't know if you can see it right side yes. up. Yep, lesson plans from lesson plans to power struggles. Well, you know, I was enamored with stories. And when my students became student teachers, they would be off in many districts, some in the far places of New York, but we would get together maybe six or eight times a semester. And I'd ask them to bring a story about what it was like, their very first days. What were they wrestling with now? And I thought, these stories are very important. Because I want all new teachers to know the fears, the laughs, the doubts that we all are cloaked in, that we're cloaked in those. And some have so many doubts whether, since it's much harder than it looks, whether they can really do it. And I wanted their supervisors to put on the goggles of a novice and better understand what their novices were wrestling with, that the novices didn't see the classroom the same way they did. And maybe they needed to reframe their suggestions for improvement so that the novice could better wrestle with it. So I had that burning desire. We as a group of student teachers laughed and cried at each other's stories. But then I said, let's publish your stories. If you give me permission, I will, with a little bit of editing, a little bit of explanation, a little bit of underlying theoretical framework, I would like to tell your stories to everybody. That's how the book was born. And once I was finished with that, I realized I could write a book. And then I said, I'm going to redecorate my mind, my brain. I'm retired now. I'm going to learn something new, and I'm going to do something new with it. Well, I love that philosophy of life. Anyway, learning, continuing to learn, and, and learning new things. So what 
books on writing maybe have been inspirational to you or other writers? First, I'll tell you, it's really the same author that has taught me so much. Lawrence Block, he writes noir mysteries set in New York City. Well, he writes many, many mysteries, but his series characters are particularly good. I've loved those. And he also writes books on how to write. I've read all of them. Spider, Spider, Spin Me a Web was a wonderful book. And then, but the first one that really attracted me to write, to reading his books about writing was Writing for Fun and Profit. Well, I haven't made much profit, I have to admit that, but I have had a lot of fun. And what he does best is dialogue. You are really there. It's really a trick to make the written word sound like the spoken word. And he can do that. It's very hard because the listener isn't really there. The listener can only go by what's written down. But we do, when we read, we're really listening too. And he can do that. Lawrence Block, read any one of his books. He's wrote well, written well over 50. But that's his claim to fame. He can make the written word seem like the oral language. And they are really very different. So I read him and his books about writing for that. But then I also read Arthur Conan Doyle for his atmosphere. You're on the moors in The Hound of the Baskervilles. Did you you read that? Yes, oh yeah. I want everybody in the world to have read that one. That was really my favorite, but I've read all of his. I wouldn't say all, but certainly all the Sherlock Holmes. And lately I've been going into his un-Sherlock Holmes books. He didn't want to be known so much for Sherlock Holmes, you know. I did not know that. He killed off Sherlock Holmes in a story about Reichenbach Falls. Sherlock Holmes falls into this waterfall. And then this was a serialized magazine. I think it was called The Strand that he wrote for. But the fans went bananas. They wanted him back. And so he had to find a very complex and clever way to bring Sherlock Holmes back from Reichenbach Falls and to explain how he fooled his friend Watson, who actually watched him fall into the abyss. So that was the story, The Empty House. And I had actually read The Empty House before I read uh, Reichenbach Falls. I couldn't have I couldn't have read his death in Reichenbach Falls until I knew that he came back to life. It was just too traumatic for me. Ah, Have you watched any of the Benedict Cumberbatch series uh, on TV, the the Sherlock series on TV? They're really good. Now, are they the actual stories or are they stories that have been written to either parody Sherlock Holmes or to imitate Arthur Conan Doyle? Oh, that's a really good question. I I didn't even think of that. I, I think it's probably the latter. Okay. Okay. So this is to imitate him because there are stories that have tried to recreate Doyle's touch. 
his own son, Adrian Conan Doyle, wrote stories, and then he collaborated with John Dixon Carr. Now, John Dixon Carr is the one you want to read if you're interested in the locked room genre. Okay. Are you in love with the locked room genre the way I am? I mean, maybe I should explain what that is. Yes, please do. A locked room drama is where a crime takes place, usually a murder, inside somewhere, need not be actually and literally a locked room, but where it's impossible for someone to have gotten in and impossible for someone to have gotten out. And so it's not as much who done it and why done it, but how done it. And John Dixon Carr was the master and still is the master. He has a Scottish background. The first one written in America, the first mystery story that was in this genre, was Edgar Allan Poe's Murders in the Rue Morgue. I don't know if you're familiar with that story. I read it a million years ago. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you're now working on a locked room mystery? I am. I don't know when I'll finish it because this has to be so tightly crafted. But as a compulsive, obsessive person, you know this would be just perfect for me. I am working on a story called The Deadliest. All my books start with The Deadliest. And this is The Deadliest Deception. And it is a locked room murder mystery. But the thing is, it doesn't really have to take place in a locked room to be considered in this subgenre. It can take place, for example, on a pristine field of snow. No clue there, no footprints. And I don't know, but for some reason, you have to make sure it couldn't have been suicide either. You have to make that clear because that's an easy out. You don't, you don't want that easy out. Is, is, um, is the body always in the room or on the location? Yes, yes. The body has to be in this locked room, whatever we're calling a locked room, even if it's a pristine field of snow. So John Dixon Carr wrote, and his most famous one is The Three Coffins. I haven't read that yet. I have a stack on my nightstand. I'll bet you do too. Oh, yes. So I forget how we got off on this, but I think you were asking me about other authors who've influenced my work. Yes, and and are you in a writing group with other authors? No, I've never been a collaborator. Never. I don't know how to collaborate even. Well, let me put it this way. In a writing group, you listen and critique each other. I do have people critique me, and you guessed it, my twin sister. I'll get the best unvarnished, the most unvarnished criticism from her. And then I have a a very, very old friend. You talk about having a friend from kindergarten. My friend I met when I was eight years old, Louis Greenberg. Right now, he's a professor of art history. He's on leave from Florida Atlantic University. But Lewis has been my childhood friend for, let's see, under 70 years, but not much, not much. He's an art historian, and he knows 
everything, but especially about classic art and classic culture. So he can read my books, not just with a critical eye toward the way the plot is evolving, but also toward the accuracy of the things that I'm writing about. So I remember one criticism I was so grateful for. I was trying to describe a slave that Miriam encounters when she comes into a house. She's looking for a resident, and a woman opens the door, a slave, and Miriam giggles. She looked just like Agrippina the Younger. And Lewis read that, and he said, oh, if she thought she saw Agrippina the Younger, she wouldn't laugh. She gasped. And so I changed the word to gasp. He said to me, his professorial finger was up. He said, don't you know who Agrippina the Younger was? I said, no. He said, that was Nero's mother. And she was the most vile person. Nero eventually was able to assassinate her. But this was a terrible, terribly cruel woman. And so Lewis corrects me on my my uh, gaffes about history. That is such valuable input. And isn't it fun to f- discover new things as you do little pieces of research on whatever it is that you're writing? It surely is. And some days I don't even know what I'm going to be researching that day because I'll come across a spot. Hey, I really don't know about that. Have you had that experience? Absolutely. In my water white series, I have a flying frog. And I I know as a science teacher, you'd say frogs don't fly. Or maybe you'd tell me that there are some frogs that do. But this particular frog, so I had to do some research on frogs. And I had no idea that they have a row of teeth on their upper palate. And that was just fascinating to me. And it actually worked into a scene. Oh, terrific. See, that's what I'm talking about. I had a scene with an Egyptian cobra. The cobra got loose. I'm going to call it a he, but I don't know what its sex was. He, he got loose and he was to move threateningly across a marble floor. Well, I didn't know how a snake in that class, it's a special class, rattlesnakes have very prominent ribs on their bellies so they can locomote across the sand. They grip with their ribs. But I didn't know if any member of that class could do that. And so I had to go back, get out my science books, looked up this class of venomous snakes and see how they, if they indeed could, maybe I'd have to change the book, but they could. And so, yes, I never knew how that class of snakes, nor could I have imagined I'd have to look that up. And I'm laughing at myself the whole time. And uh, another thing I discovered, there's a, there's a tragic octopus situation in book two of Water White, Water White Flux. And I didn't really know too much about octopi, the plural, which a lot of people say octopuses, but supposedly <laughs> octopi is right. But to find out that they have copper blood and three hearts and all those things, just it gave me goosebumps when I did the research because it tied in with so many things that I had already written in book one. It was magical. Oh, oh. Well, you're an English teacher. Once you're an English teacher, you're always an English teacher, Laurel. What about the plural of hippopotamus? 
I haven't looked that one up, and I would have to look it up. I would say. Hmm. Everybody says that, but I don't know if that's really true. Okay, do you have a dictionary handy? Let's see. Let's see. What's the plural of hippopotamus? Here's what I found on the web for what's the plural of hippopotamus. Oh no, I have to I have to read it. I thought she was just going to tell me. So oh, right? so hang, hang on a hang on a minute. I'm not going to sing. I'm not going to sing. You're not going to sing? No, I could fill in the time by singing, but I'm not going to. I'm going to save all our viewers. Now, now, now! I want you to sing. Sing something while I look this up. No, do you know my husband Paul doesn't permit me to sing in the house? I do when he's not around. I want you to sing something right now. <laughs> I can't do that. No one will ever buy your books or mine ever again. <laughs> this is going on octopuses. It's talking about octopuses. I asked him about hippopotamuses. I'm going to say it's probably. Oh, it's too. Oh. I'm just. I'm. Oh, hippopotamuses, the usual plural, hippopotamuses. So there we go. There we have it. Thank you, Siri. I I stand corrected, and I'm grateful. (laughs) Listeners and viewers, you're never too old to learn. (laughs) And and we can learn everything right on our phone, right? How crazy is that? So you're working on a couple books right now, I think, and and, um, you publish through Black Opal publishers correct black opal books. black opal books that's the way i think of them b-o-b b-o-b what's your opinion of the status of publishing today wow very confusing uh very difficult but the first adjective that comes to my mind is very competitive in a way this is good for the reader there are murder mysteries for everyone There are murder mysteries if you're a cat, if you're a dog, if you're a nun, if you're a priest, you can find a protagonist, a veterinarian, uh, who knows what. So that's the good part, that everyone, it seems to me, has a chance. Certainly, I wouldn't have been able to write without a computer. I can't really type without mistakes and correct things so easily. I could never bear the frustration of that. So the good part is that there are lots of people who feel emboldened to write, and they can even now publish themselves, self-publishing through a company that they start or through Amazon or some other company. But it makes it very hard for a prospective reader to filter through this enormous pool of books that come out and find out exactly what suits them most. So that's where it's difficult for the reader. I would say the publishing industry has great promise and probably in the future, at least this is my perspective, virtually everything will be published in some form of ebook. Mm-hmm. So what advice might you give to people who are thinking about becoming writers and publishing? I know it's a really broad question, but any tidbits? I would. I would say avoid comparing yourself to other writers. Everyone has his or her own story to tell. Appreciate your own point of view. Each one of us is unique. Next, 
accept and learn from your failures. My friend Peggy Kanata used to say, unless you fail once in a while, you're not reaching. You're not reaching far enough. And then be grateful that you have this opportunity, this opportunity to express yourself, and you have the time as well to be able to do it. You've had the opportunity to do it. It's just a precious thing, Laurel. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned time and having the time to do it, and that's that's a huge thing, right? I mean, I I had to stop teaching full time in order to write my books because after spending it a whole day teaching English and then grading English papers, there was nothing left at the end of my day for creativity. And and I know that some people can hold a full-time job and crank out books too. I couldn't do it. Um, I, I think in a way it's a luxury. I feel like I've got the luxury to be able to do it. You know, my husband has been so supportive of me and he's saying, you know, just go ahead and write your books. Uh, you know, maybe someday, maybe someday you'll be discovered. But it, it, the, the, the discovery part, regardless of if that happens, yeah, I, I think we, I know you, I know I, write because we have these stories burning in us and we want to share them. And even to have one person come up and say, oh my gosh, I loved that book or whatever it was. I went to Comic-Con and, and a woman, a strange, a strange woman found me and said, you know, you're one of three authors I wanted to meet that's why we write, you know, both for ourselves and for those handful of, uh, of appreciative readers. When I write, I picture my reader waiting in a hospital room because I think that's among the hardest waits. And if I can make that time a little better, pass a little faster, then I feel it's all been more than worthwhile. June, that's beautiful. How can people find you if they want more information from you or to find your books? One place, simple enough. www.junetrope, that's one word, J-U-N-E-T is in Thomas, R-O-P is in Peter, dot com. Junetrope.com. You'll see a better picture of me. I was a little younger. You will you will learn a little bit more about my books, and you'll get to see a book trailer, a video, which will tempt you to read each book, and you can just find out lots of things about my characters. You can find out more about my autobiography. I would love to hear from you. If you want to, you can even subscribe to my newsletter, all you have to do is go to June Trope, that's T as in Thomas, R-O-P as in Peter, and that's June like the month, by the way, junetrope.com. I hope to see you. I want to see you. <laughs> I love it. Uh, one last question. What type of preserves do you spread on your toast in the morning? Alligator preserves. <laughs> but if you're out of alligator preserves, what would you spread on your toast? And, and what would your husband, Paul, spread on his? Well, I would spread on the toast, and I put it on his. But you see, alligator isn't kosher, and I'm an observant Jewess. I observe the dietary laws. So I might spread it on my toast, but I wouldn't eat it. I eat cottage cheese every morning. No fat. No fat cottage cheese. <laughs> and I hope my husband does, too. <laughs> I recommend everybody else 
Alligator preserves. <laughs> June Trope, this has been a delight. And I thank you so much. I will have links with photos. Send me some photos, would you please? I'll have links and photos on my website at leadvillearl.com about things that we've discussed today. And uh, please sign up for June's newsletter. Sign up for my newsletter if you'd like as well. And uh, I wish you the best of luck with all your new books coming out, your locked room mysteries. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to check that out for sure. So we'll talk to you another time. As always, you can find today's show notes with links and photos on my website at leadvillearl.com. If you enjoyed this and other episodes, please subscribe to Alligator Preserves on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends about it. I hope you'll support me on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash alligatorpreserves and join me next time when we'll talk about something completely different. Until then, I wonder what kind of mystery you might write. Drop me a line. Let me know. Bye. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com. <laughs> <laughs>